Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. This is the famous Martha and Mary story. It comes in, the, in Luke's Gospel immediately following when the scholar of the law comes to him and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And the, Jesus asks him, what does the law say? And he, he, re, he repeats the uh, Shema Israel, the love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan when he asks, who is my neighbor? It seems that what Luke wants to do now is to continue the same question, what must I do to gain eternal life? In the story of the Good Shepherd, he, uh, or the Good Samaritan, he, um, he makes it clear about what it means to love your neighbor. In this one, the emphasis is going to shift away from the doing to the hearing and the praying and so forth. And so it fills out the picture because what it fulfills, what it responds to, is the first part of the Shema Israel, you shall love the Lord your God above all things in your, and uh, with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind. So the two, these two passages in Luke's Gospel go together to kind of complete, complete an idea, to complete a lesson, a teaching from Jesus concerning the fullness of the fulfillment of the great commandment. And so what happens then is in the gospel it says Jesus came to a village. Now, this we know that Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was kind of what we would call a suburb of Jerusalem. But Luke is not going to mention the village because Luke still has his thematic of Jesus on pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem to meet his destiny. Um, and so it would, it, while John tells us of his multiple visits to Jerusalem, um, Luke is very careful to avoid all geographical locations that don't fit in with the pilgrimage idea. And uh, we should not really have a great deal of, of problems with that. First of all, because um, the, uh, the Gospels are not about geography, but they're about the overarching kerygma, the proclamation of the word. And so if Luke chooses to structure that proclamation of the word inside of the terms of kind of a pilgrimage from Galilee to, uh, to Jerusalem, so be it. It's not the geography that matters to us. It's what Luke is trying to show us about our own pilgrimage in life, from our own Galilees to our own Jerusalems, and, uh, and to keep us focused along the way. So while the village of Bethany is not named, it's very clear from the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, that uh, the village actually is Bethany. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. When it says that Martha welcomed her, him into her home, we know that, uh, that Mary and, and Lazarus also lived there. It means, therefore, that the matron of the household is Martha, and that means she is the oldest of the three. And so she is the one, then, to extend the hospitality. Hospitality, we know, is a very, very critical part of, of, of Hebrew life. 
um, in in the first century. The the uh, the reading about Abraham and the visitation of the three travelers um, is is a good example of that. And uh, it's it's like as soon as they come, the first thing that Abraham does is begin to make preparations to feed them, because that becomes then the uh, you know the sign of their hospitality. And I think that sometimes, you know, it confuses us in the scriptures. It's always kind of been puzzling to me when, uh, for instance, in that story of Abraham and the, and the three visitors, Abraham says to Sarah, um, you know, quickly, quickly, um, hurry and knead three bushels of flour and make loaves. Well, that means that nobody's in a hurry because to knead three bushels of flour is a day-long task. And so what they collapse into a sense of time, we know, for instance, that that means that the visitor stayed for a while. And so, too, is it here now that, um, that Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. And she's going to have to then provide the hospitality because that's what they do. It's interesting in Catholicism, it's the Benedictines that pick up that that theme of, of hospitality as being an essential part of living the Christian life. It says then also that Martha had a sister called Mary who sat down at the Lord's feet and listened to him speaking. So while Martha is preparing for the hospitality, that uh, whether she had foreknowledge of Jesus' arrival or not, um, if she did, then everything would have already been prepared, and what she was busy about was probably the cleanup. But uh, but Mary sat down at the Lord's feet and listened to him speaking. And here's where this gospel contrasts with the gospel of the Good Samaritan. There we saw what it meant to love our neighbor. Here we see what it means to love the Lord your God. To sit at his feet and to listen to him is the first step in the adoration of the Lord. And I think that, you know, we have, um, I don't know, we, we have kind of gotten in the sense, this sitting at the feet of the Lord and listening is, is kind of a waste of time, you know. It's kind of like in our mindsets, our cultural mindsets, it would be like, you know, fiddling why Rome burned. Um, it, it, it was, it's, it's just simply takes away from the necessity of things. But we're going to find out in this gospel that that's not true. That while the story of the Good Samaritan is a story of great activity, the story of Martha, of Mary sitting at the feet of the Lord is the story of the fulfillment of the first part of the Shema Israel, the first part of the great commandment. Now Martha, who was distracted with all the serving, said, Lord, do you not care that my sister is leaving me to do the serving all by myself? And this, this is an interesting thing because this is the mantra, actually, of many much within modern Catholicism, that the idea of sitting at the feet of the Lord and listening is something that seems to many to be kind of a waste of time when there's so much to do. And uh, the part, part of the reflection on that is, sure, there's a lot to do. But there are people within the Catholic Church who only think that doing something is is the whole faith, that there is no sitting at the feet and listening, there is no prayer that matters. What really matters is the celebration of themselves as a community and doing good works. Um, and so Jesus challenges that. 
And they could go back and say, well, you know, we're talking about Jesus told us to love our neighbor. And so that's what we're doing is we're being good to our neighbor. Yeah, but there's another part of the Shema Israel. There's an, another part of the great commandment, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I think we took a radical turn from this back in the 1960s. I recall reading the uh, Divine Milieu from um, Pierre Thierry de Chardin, and there was a line in there, and I remember very clearly from when I first read the book, um, and it said, your work is your prayer. Um, that has a very positive connotation to it, when it really means that, that our, our good works are really part of our prayer of praising the Lord and, and helping our neighbor. But it also has a very bad interpretation to it, which means that the only way to pray is to be active and to be doing things. And this, I'm afraid, has become kind of the mindset of the, uh, of the social justice warriors, those who see that as the only aspect of, of, of the faith and the only way to live out their faith. And, uh, and so uh, Chardin's uh, harmless little statement can become, can become either an enhancement of our daily lives and our daily work, or it can kind of shatter the idea of the great commandment, depending upon how someone decides to interpret it. Um, with, with the great cosmic vision that Chardin was blessed with, um, it's hard to believe that he meant that contemplation and prayer were not part of the road to heaven. Um, he was terribly optimistic. In fact, is it took the, the Dutch theologian Piet Schoenenberg an entire book to kind of salvage Chardin from his uh, utopian kind of idea that there is a, a natural evolution of all creation into, the, into being with the Lord. And uh, Schoenenberg was, uh, was very careful to point out that that's, that's true but that it is impacted and affected by human history. And human history becomes kind of the foil of the evolutionists, of those who see the inevitability of universal salvation. And Schoenenberg points out, you know, that the foil to that, to that utopian dream is really the story of humanity, is really human history. So, so while, in fact, um, we, we can't be utopian about the loving of the Lord our God and therefore say, you know, well, gee, if, if I'm good to the poor all my life, but I never pray, that's good enough for God. Well, I don't know what's good enough for God, but I do know what he said. And what he said is you should love the Lord your God with your whole heart. And too much of the good works of Catholicism that I am aware of is not about serving the Lord, but it's about really feeling good about what we do. And thinking somehow or other that you know what a what a great what a great task I'm doing in my life. I know that when there was there was uh, controversy um, in some religious communities, and uh, the comeback is well, you know, I take food to the poor, and that's a wonderful thing, and that's something that we ought to do. But that's not the fullness of the faith. The fullness of the faith is to do it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, while we listen to Him and sit at His feet as well. So. What we have then is, Lord, do you not care that my sister is leaving me to do the serving all by myself? Please tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, he said, you are worried and fret about so many things, and yet few are needed, indeed only one. 
And so it, it, isn't, it isn't a harsh corrective at all. And it isn't that, you know, he's saying that, you know, the whole idea of serving or cleaning up or whatever Martha is doing is not an important task. But it's prioritizing, because in the Shema Israel, what comes first? What comes first is the love of God, and what comes second is the love of neighbor. And the love of neighbor is supposed to flow from the love of God. Because if we love someone, then we love those whom they love. I think that we, we can see that, for instance, in, in blended marriages. You can't have a, a, a widow and a widower, both with families, marry each other and say, gee, we love the other person, but we hate their children. Um, it's not gonna, that relationship is not going to work. And it's kind of a, a human model that we might want to look at um, to see what Jesus is talking about here in the love of God and the love of neighbor. That if you love God, then you will love those whom he loves. And the fact of the matter is, he loves everyone. And that's the point of the Good Samaritan story. Everyone is our neighbor, whether they are our enemy or not. And certainly in the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans were at enmity with the Jews and the Jews with the Samaritans. And yet it is the Samaritan that helps the, 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 the wounded Jew along the road. And that example then goes back to the Gospel of St. Matthew, where it says, you know, you should love your enemies. If you only love those who love you, what good is there in that? Even pagans do that. Um, but so you have to love your enemy. And I think that, that we, we discussed the, uh, the difficulties of that and uh, in discussing the difficulties of that in relationship to the wider political, socio-political um, phenomenon of uh, the wider political phenomenon of the world in which we live and how that relates to some, some really intense and great social and political issues, especially when it comes to the nature of war. But, Martha, Martha, you worry and fret about so many things. There are so many things in our daily lives which simply compel our attention. And uh, I know that even, even among the clergy, while we're obliged to, um, to pray the bravery every day, sometimes it becomes in, uh, extremely difficult to do the hours at the correct time and, and all of this kind of thing because we're so busy about many things. And yet that's the moment when we're supposed to sit at the feet of the Lord and listen to his word. And yet sometimes there just seems to be, well, there's no time for it. I'm too busy. And, uh, and so I have to do it all, you know, out of sequence or something, um, which is, you know, you're doing it, but, but it's not, it's not the story. It's not, it's not the proper time. So, so yeah, we understand that or, or how often do you get the, the, you get the excuse, gee, I miss mass, but you know, but my son had a soccer game or my daughter had a soccer game or a volleyball game or or something. We're just too busy to sit at the feet of the Lord and listen to his word. And what Jesus is saying, that's not legitimate. That's just not legitimate. That despite the many things that each of us has to do in our lives and the difficulty we have managing a schedule to do that, the priority doesn't change according to our schedule. And the implication is our schedule should change uh, according to the according to the need to be spend time and to be with the Lord and to sit at his feet and listen to him. 
And so the many things that... that and, and there's no harshness in this critique of Martha. It, it, seems to be, it seems to be almost kind of a lighthearted banter between friends. Um, and, and then he says, indeed, only one thing is necessary, and it is Mary who has chosen the better part, and it is not to be taken from her. Within the history of the Church, this comparison has been um, always used to, uh, in some way, to justify the, uh, the, the contemplative life. And, and this is an interesting aspect of the contemplative life. We can honestly say, well, one person shuts themselves up in a cloister and they never do any good for anyone. Isn't that a bit selfish? And the answer to that is no, because the one stark contrast between, between Reformation Christianity and Catholicism is that it is the Reformation which individualizes everything in theology and everything in the Gospels, which brings them into the conundrum of the idea of predestination being an individual phenomenon. Whereas in the Catholic Church, theology and the scriptures is always interpreted corporately. And so what happens is that the contemplative life within the body of Christ, within the whole church, is that element of a single body which sits at the feet of the Lord and listens and adores and prays. It is not that the individual is somehow or other carving their niche out of the cosmos for themselves. It is the fact they are contributing to the wholeness of, of the corporate church, of the church as a body, as a church. And, and Paul uses that image always, the head, the hands, the feet, and so forth. You know, the, the church is a body and the Lord is his head and so forth. This idea of the corporate nature of our, of our exegesis and the corporate nature of our theological reflection remains essential to the fidelity to the teaching of the church and to the revelation of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can only see this not, for instance, as you know, those who are in some way, shape, or form not doing, not pulling their, their fair weight, not doing their fair task uh, in order to, um, you know, to spread um, the kingdom of God in the world. No, we see the whole church's task is doing that, and there are active elements, and there are and there are there, there are the Marian elements, the sitting at the feet of the Lord and listening, so that the whole body includes the entire mission of the church, and not just my personal mission. Um, if a person says, "I feel called to the contemplative life," and I'm going off to a life of prayer, many people say, "Well, that's such a waste. Look at all the work we have to do in the world." Well, all the work we have to do in the world would not be done very well if it weren't for those fulfilling the prayer part of the church's life, fulfilling the contemplative part of the church's life, the merry part of the church's life, the sitting at the feet of the Lord and listening. That the whole, the whole story of the visit to Martha and Mary takes on its wholeness through the double task of Martha and Mary. Um, and that it isn't just if Jesus came to the house and Mary was just there sitting there, sitting at his feet, the hospitality demanded would not be offered. And if Martha was the only one home and she was busy about many things, the guest would be, the guest, in this case Jesus, would have been neglected because of all the many things that she had to do. But when you put the household together, then what you have is you have the active part and you also have 
the the uh, contemplative part. And uh, Jesus is saying, yeah, the contemplative part is where actually we make touch with the Lord, make touch with, with the living God within the body of Christ. And it is that that then brings a certain amount of animation, a certain amount of liveliness and so forth in, into, into the whole church. Um, I, I think, and I think I, I made reference to this before, but there is something fascinating about the contemplative life, and I think the great example of that is the film Into Great Silence, which if no one has seen that, it's something worth seeing. Um, I, it's, it's the story of, of the Carthusians, and it's kind of amusing because the, uh, the, the filmmaker, the film producer, went to the abbot of the Grand Chartreuse in France and asked if they could film the life of the monastery. And he said, well, he'd have to pray about it and think about it and get back to him. Sixteen years later, he called him back and said, yeah, I guess that's all right. And so they came and they made this film on the Carthusian life. And it didn't, it, they didn't expect a whole lot of response to it. But just as an example, it was going to show at the Wexner Center at Ohio State um, for just a couple days, but the demand was so great it stayed a couple weeks. People are fascinated by that. It's a wonder. It's a mystery. Um, what, what does this do? And the idea is really, in many ways, it, it reflects the, the inner life of the church. It's not that the rest of us don't have to spend our time in prayer and adoration, our time at the, foot of the, at the feet of the Lord and listening to the Word and so forth. It's not that we don't have to do that, because that's the wholeness of ourselves as an individual. But that's not the gospel lesson. The gospel lesson is actually an ecclesial lesson, just like theology is ecclesial theology. It, it took in the, whole, in the whole idea, you know, Augustine says we're predestined, Paul says we're predestined, and... Um, and fine. But uh, what does that mean? The uh, Calvin interpreted it as a personal individual thing. And there's a great reflection on that in Max Weber's book, um, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. But, uh, and something well worth reading. But, um, but what happens is that, uh, that it really is the story of the whole church, and it took St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, a, a young Carmelite sister in the beginning of the, of the 20th century, I think she died in 1906, if I'm not mistaken, um, to really reinterpret that for the modern world, saying, no, this is a corporate sense of predestination. If you are in Christ, you share his destination. And, uh, and she goes then to emphasize the importance of the Eucharist, which is when we are bound to Christ. And that's kind of reflective of St. Claude Colombier's um, great line about you know, we should be so close to Jesus, and how much closer can we be than in the Eucharist? And cling to him so tightly that if he decided to send us to hell, he would be obliged to accompany us. Um, there's a great deal of, of humor in that, but there's also a very profound insight in that. That bound to the Lord, we share his destiny. He does not share ours. Um, and so that bound to him, we are predestined. Um, individually and on our own, there is no such thing as a personal predestination. It's either in, united with the church, the body of Christ, or it's not. So, anyways, so St. Saint, uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity, um, who was a profound theologian in her own right, um, she is the one then who kind of brought that clarity into the contemporary discussion. We find in a lot of contemporary theology that it simply mocks the secular sciences and uh, and attempts to uh, 
to deal with the, the higher realms of psychology or sociology or something like that. And that has to happen if you lose the corporate nature of the theological endeavor or the corporate nature of, of scriptural exegesis. And that's where this story here also kind of, in a way, gets distorted. It's like, well, you know, Jesus, um, Jesus is rejecting Martha because she's busy, and that's not true. He's throwing everything in, into, into perspective and throwing everything into the perspective of the great commandment. And so in this story, then, he completes and he fulfills that which he began in the story of the Good Samaritan. And so the story of Martha and Mary become a response also to the question of the scholar of the law in the beginning of the Good Samaritan Gospel, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And, uh, and here Jesus is saying, you know, to obtain eternal life, not only must you love your neighbor, but you must also love the Lord. And I think that's a real honest reflection for us. For we, we have difficulty with this idea of loving God. And because in, in the Old Testament, it says you love the Lord your God. Because God in the Old Testament was seen as very present and very active in human history. He was a presence in everyday life. Um, he was not as graphically present as was Jesus in Nazareth and Jerusalem and so forth. But he was present. And his word did speak. The word, the second person of the bus attorney, spoke to the, to the Hebrew people. And spoke to Moses, as Jesus himself confirms in John's Gospel, through the burning bush. It was the word that spoke. It was, it was the second person who spoke. The one who John tells us became flesh and dwells among us. So, so we have... So we have the Lord Jesus um, as another human to to elicit human emotions from us about caring for another person. But in doing so, we're carried through his humanity into his divinity. And it's through him, therefore, that we learn to love the Lord. And without loving the Lord, it's very hard to serve him. And without serving him, the good works that we do tend to become serving ourselves. And, um, and I know that I was challenged on that one time when I used the word altruism. They said, what's wrong with altruism? I said, well, nothing's wrong with altruism, but it's not the fulfillment of the great commandment. Because the great commandment means it has to be done not in love of the self or even compassion for the other, but it has to be done out of the love of God for it to take on the redemptive qualities that the great commandment implies. So today, as, as we reflect upon this gospel, it might, be, it might be a very good thing for us to do, to meditate on the whole church as the body of Christ and to see the value of the different working parts of that body and how that incorporates a wholeness of the great commandment into the midst of the modern world. And then, from the macrocosm, we might want to come to the microcosm and ask ourselves, too, are we balanced between love of God and love of neighbor? Or have we sold out one for the sake of the other? Which, in our lives, in the world, in our daily lives, both elements become a necessity of the living the faith. So let us pray that within each of our own hearts, and certainly within the whole church, that the great commandment is exercised and realized, and that it might be it's done so completely and so thoroughly that it becomes an even more effective instrument for the salvation of the world and the salvation of souls. 
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.